Welcome everyone to the Arthroscopy Association's Arthroscopy Journal podcast. I'm Dr. Andrea Spiker from the University of Wisconsin. Today, I have the privilege of speaking with Dr. Hal Martin, who is the Medical and Research Director of the Hip Preservation Center at Baylor University Medical Center in Dallas, Texas. Dr. Martin was a senior author of the publication titled, Low Back Pain Improves After Surgery for Lesser Trochanteric Ischial Impingement, which was published in the May 2021 edition of the Arthroscopy Journal. Dr. Martin's co-author was Dr. Munif Hatham. Welcome, Dr. Martin, and thank you so much for joining me. Dr. Spiker, thank you so much for uh, the honor and the pleasure of, of uh, speaking with you this evening about posterior hip disorders. Well, thank you so much. Can you please start our discussion this evening by telling us a little bit about your practice? Yes, I, I began it um, again almost 30 years ago in north o- north of Oklahoma City and did a lot of sports and trauma. And then I went back and did a one-year fellowship with Mark Phillip on the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. And then kept going back and forth in other years. Dr. Brian Kelly was there and things were un- unfolding you know, within the hip. And I practiced at uh, Oklahoma Sports Science and Orthopedics for another 10 years. And then Baylor called and asked me to come down and, and work with them on the, some research in this area. And I've been there for the past 10 years. Wonderful. So, Hal, for many of us, the posterior hip is unfamiliar territory. What is your general approach to posterior hip pain and lesser trochanteric ischial impingement? Specifically, how do you approach diagnosis, imaging, and treatment? You know, Andre, this is a, this is a, a complex area, but I, I want to break it down just a little bit. Um, you know, this, these patients... Um, you know, been around and they've been seeing us for a long time before we've been able to really understand what the uh, pathology was all about. And the only way you can really understand the depth of the complexity is to have a plan. And so for us, uh, really, uh, we use Brian uh, Kelly's concept and Pedrovich is the five-layer concept every single time. It, with the idea that we're going to get a comprehensive history and physical examination to be able to have the goal to explain those five layers of pathology. And the pathology is really a cascade. Uh, it begins with the osseous, it goes to the capsule labral and muscular tennis and neurovascular, and then the kinematic chain. And, and that really has to be uh, something that we understand in a three-planar uh, way uh, to understand the biomechanics in all three planes so that those layers make sense uh, so that we can establish a good diagnosis and then create an effective plan uh, for, for both the short-term and the long-term for these patients. So, you know, I think to me the history is, you know, where we begin with it, but it, it, it really can be quite a complex problem trying to sort out the spine, the hip, the pelvis, the core, and, and, and that's the reason we really have to use the second system that's really described by uh, Daniel Kahneman, you know, in thinking fast and slow. We need to have a structured way of interpretation of the data that's presented both from the history as well as from the, uh, the, the physical examination of the patient. So um, hopefully that kind of gives you just my, my way of, of, of why should we do it. I think you know, just as hip surgeons, we have to try to understand this, even though it's complicated. And uh, it's much easier, I think, sometimes on our schedule uh, to just stay with the simple things. But, but I think really we're at a point right now that we simply must understand this pathology so that we can give effective care to these patients and, and make, make sure that they're getting the right care. And the way we do that is through comprehensive uh, history and physical examination. Hal, I think you make an excellent point. I think one thing that you pointed out was that it is 
you know, three-dimensional and multi-directional diagnoses. And oftentimes when we think of hip pathology, we're thinking about the anterior hip. And too often, I think that posterior hip is forgotten. So I'm really glad that you're performing your research in this area, that you're dedicating your practice to this area and really helping us understand what is going on in the posterior hip. To that end, one thing that you mentioned in your article was the importance of patient positioning in the MRI. Would you mind just briefly touching on the importance of that and how you uh, position a patient when obtaining an MRI, specifically looking at posterior hip pathology? Yeah, ab absolutely. Uh, so, uh, you know, moving on to sort of the imaging component, I mean, do a structured physical examination first. Get an idea of the foot progression angle and work your way up. You know, look for genuvalgum. Look, look for, you know, what pathologic condition three-dimensionally do you see from your, your clinical examination, both actively as well as passively. And I, I just want to say that, you know, before we get to the imaging, I think it's just really important that we stress that we have a consistent way uh, on which to cast the shadow of pathology. So when we did that little study with um, Mark Safran uh, years ago and tried to look at what tests were important to do, uh, the interesting thing about that paper was when we looked at everybody's physical examination, they had a consistency irregardless of the history. And so that's the reason I think we have to have a structured exam. So we, we, we begin by looking at the foot progression angle, the medium alular distance, and then we try to have the, the techs, we train the techs in our center to do the same thing. So in addition to a standing AP lateral and a lateral false profile and then a frog leg lateral, we get always on every case when we do our MRIs or an MRI arthrogram, uh, we'll do a three-dimensional study called the McKibben's Index. And I know you're familiar with that uh, from Brian's work. Uh, but uh, we, we try to do this, the interclass correlation, if you tape the, the bimalar distance and you control the foot progression angle, then you get a pretty good idea where that ischial fin space and the torsion is at midfoot stance phase. And so that helps you to kind of project what's going to happen it, or does it correlate with your physical examination to, to kind of support the idea that you have a condition of ischial femoral impingement, which is not radiographic diagnosis. It's a clinical and radiographic diagnosis. And so it's based on the entire biomechanical axis from the foot up all the way to the hip. And you have to look at each level in order to identify what are the primary causes and contributors to the narrowness of the ischial femoral space. That's excellent. And I guess to break it down even further, how, what would you say is the most simplistic explanation or definition of lesser trochanteric ischial impingement that you can give the listeners? Well, so there's dynamic and there's static. So I think that the easiest thing to do is that these are, it, it, this I think, you know, as we were talking just before, uh, Andrea, is that, you know, we're taking care of something really that's a congenital and developmental condition. And we're going to treat it. We're not going to cure it. And why do these things appear later in life? Well, it can be as simple as just abductor weakness and increased stiffness of the joint. We've seen, though, that even if you have a labral tear, that you can change the mid-axis translation uh, for, the, for the axial translation, the midpoint, and that can each actually narrow the ischial from space. So you can look at dynamics such as abductor weakness. You can look at, at more static. You can begin at hyperpronation of the hind foot, genuvalgum, coxivalgum, increased torsion lesser trochanteric increased torsion, you know, that's that's some of the more common etiologies, but we're, we haven't even got into, you know, sagittal plane balance and pelvic inclination, which also can actually affect that ischial thumb space. So you have to kind of think above the joint, just like we're doing everything else and below the joint and treat the easy things first. Get, get good abductor strength, correct the hind foot, 
And the biggest thing that we've been able to, found, to find, Andrea, is to, is to teach the patient what's the cause of this ischial femoral impingement and the loss of terminal hip extension. If you can lay the patient on the side and they have a block to terminal hip extension, you have to figure out why is, why is that occurring? Is it due to ischial femoral impingement, which is alleviated with abduction, terminal hip extension, or is it increased torsion where you can internally rotate the leg and take it into terminal hip extension? And so uh, it can also be through the ligamentous complex, through the medial arm of the alleophem, in which the, the medial, arm, medial arm actually locks the terminal hip extension prematurely and doesn't allow it to go into terminal hip extension. And then there's the more common causes that we can always see with posterior cam or uh, profunda, uh, you know, big posterior wall that can block it out. And those are easy to, to recognize and understand. But I think the torsional anomalies, and especially when they're in combination with ischial thermal impingement, we have, to, we have to sort out those dynamic and static factors and do it methodically. That was an excellent summary of a very complicated uh, diagnostic problem in the posterior hip. So I appreciate your summarizing that. Now, in your paper, you sought to characterize the effects that surgery for lesser trochanteric ischial impingement, also LTI, had on low back pain. So why did this question come to mind? And here, can you tell us a little bit more about your experience with the hip spine syndrome in both your pre- and post-operative patients? Yeah, thank you for that question, um, Andrea. It's, uh, it's an important one because it's, this is a cascade. I think we all recognize with the anterior pathology the, the importance of the psoas. Uh, psoas impingement with label pathology, or we have sagittal plane imbalance problems uh, with increased PI or increased lumbar lordosis, and we can get an impingement. We understand that. The same type of cascaded pathology can occur uh, really in the, uh, the posterior hips. So we want, we want to identify and be able to identify, you know, What's caused, if the patient comes in and they say, we use a pain drawing, so we have a jot form, the patient has it on the back, if they draw back, it usually has a very distinct pattern, right from the, you know, the, the, the lesser choke up through the SI and into the lower lumbar spine, they'll just put a line on there, and, but we always have to rule out the back, we have to rule out the lumbar spine, we need to rule out the pelvis, the interpelvis, and then we're down to the secondary causes, so that's another reason that you have to do your physical examination, check the hip. But there's one thing I would say for everybody to remember is that to check the hip and lying in the lateral position, check the hip and make sure it goes into terminal hip extension. If not, why not? And if the, the block recreates the pain in the lumbar spine, which many times it does, that's the hip spine to me. That's an extension hip spine. Conversely, you can have the same thing. We've seen this in cadaver labs. We've seen it in our finite element analysis in that you can put in a dowel in the front of the hip and create a cam, and it's just like Patrick Birmingham said. You get the secondary load transfer, maybe not through the tubic symphysis, but you'll get it through the SI. So that, to me, is a flexion hip spine. Conversely, extension hip spines, premature coupling that occurs with the, the block of that doesn't allow the hip to get into terminal hip extension with the recreation of spine from hip motion, spine pain with hip motion. And then, we're sort, then we have to sort out why isn't the hip going into terminal hip extension and what factors uh, contribute to that. And that's where we have to have, you know, the entire physical examination and uh, three-planar biomechanical axis to, to understand the loss of that terminal hip extension. But, but I think it's really, really important today to check that hip always in a lateral position in terminal hip extension. And if it doesn't go, if it blocks premature and recreates the back pain, that's, that's extension hip spine syndrome. And sometimes it'll be in the core muscle pathology. Sometimes it's at the SI, it's at the piriformis. 
The piriformis is nothing more than the psoas and the posterior hip. So it'll get aggravated with these secondary load transfers the same way that the psoas does on the anterior hip. Yeah, that's that's absolutely, uh, you know, an excellent way to think about it. I think, you know, in very simplistic terms, when there isn't motion at the hip, the body seeks it elsewhere and those adjacent joints. Yeah. And you've described a couple of excellent ways in which we can can dynamically assess that in the patient in the clinic. You know, in, in the old days when we did a lot more posterior lateral hips, we could always we can check for that terminal hip extension loss. So part of the part of my background is when I did posterior lateral hips, we'd always check for torsion, or you get excessive cup antiversion, or you get you get a stem that's a little bit excessively inverted. Like you know, if you're doing you know some modular type of component, and and it's sort of that's the reason we always had to check the hip and terminal hip extension, and then you could adjust the cup, you could adjust the neck, or you could adjust the offset. Or if the ischial femur was just too tight, we just we just do the lesser trochlasty to or initial plasty just to get the terminal hip in extension if we saw some sort of bony pathology there. So part of this for me just kind of grew out of, of um, naturally uh, from from having done uh, quite a quite a lot of total hips in my early days. That is a very fluid connection between total hip replacement and then hip preservation. Now, when a patient presents to your office with hip pain, what is your preferred assessment of their potential back pathology? So what are those exams that you're doing to look at specifically at the back? So as a part of, we always do a, you know, standing, walking, sitting, supine, lateral, and prone examination. And usually we, we, we always check the patient to see you know, and then do a comprehensive neurologic examination. So I, the first thing I do is always watch them walk um, and uh, look for any weakness. You can heel toe, you know, you can walk on your toes, you can walk on the heels if you need to, if there's any question. Uh, the forward bending to me is really helpful to know if the pain is really generated from the lumbar spine. And then when they sit, I usually do a side bending or an extension along with the straight leg raise and sensory examination side to side. I do deep tenor reflexes every single time along with pulses because I think it's important to do the basics. Not all my patients are, most of my patients are sick uh, from other pathology as well. And um, so I think it's really important that we, we have that structured examination. And, um, and, and so it's just a part of the a good, uh, you know, physical examination, being a good orthopedic surgeon, you do the basics uh, every single time. And that helps us to really screen out uh, if, if if they have a positive slump test, like I have them slump over, and if that recreates the pain in their posterior hip, that's coming from the back. You know, that's just because the hip is stable. And whenever you just slump them over and that creates the, and so we'll be more inclined to, to go ahead and, and jump a little quicker into uh, a lumbar MRI in addition to just plain film uh, imaging. And how now once you've diagnosed a patient with lesser trochanteric ischial impingement, what are some of the conservative treatment measures you might offer them prior to offering them surgery? We always say that the very first step that we always offer is education. So education is the most critical thing. And you say, what kind of education could there be? There's all of it. If you think you have a positive hip, hip extension block and it's IFI, elevated and abduction, you want to teach the patient how to walk either with short steps or wide steps. If they're in a hurry, they've got to go wide so they can get terminal hip extension and clearance. You can correct the hind foot. Uh, you can just use an orthotic if they're kind of borderline, like at a 17 or 18. You can make sure that their abductor strength is five out of five of both the max, the med, and the medius, or the minimus and the medius. 
You want to make sure that they're all five out of five and check them. Uh, make sure that they're, you know, very, very strong. Um, you want core to be strong because we know that with core imbalance, you can narrow that ischial film space. So core abductor strength, correct the hind foot, and then teach them how to walk through the short steps or wide. And this is important too for mom, you know, moms that are in the kitchen, uh, you know, or, you know, that if they're just twisting, they want to be abducted so that they can twist in the kitchen or unloading things from the car or kids. Um, my young moms, I try to teach them that, and it's surprising uh, that they can just make some simple modifications once they understand what's setting the piriformis off, what's setting their SI joint off, to be able to modify around it. Um, and so that's our first step. And I'd say that that, a lot of times, even with or without an injection at the initial film space, that alone sometimes is effective enough to get them to where that they can control it and they feel more in control and they can avoid uh, a surgery. One caveat about that, you know, just too, is if they have increased femoral torsion, then you want to teach them to kind of toe in as they abduct and, and uh, you know, and uh, lift or twist in combination. And, and especially that's true if they have any borderline dysplasia. That's excellent. Those are all really helpful tips to offer our patients when we've diagnosed them uh, with this pathology. So for those listeners who may not have previously treated lesser trochanteric ischial impingement, can you take us through your technique and, and tell us a little bit of, about the technical challenges that you run into when treating this pathology? Absolutely. Well, the first thing is make sure you have the right patient. You know, you, you want to make sure that you don't have increased torsion, uh, that, you, you know, a lot of times these are dysmorphic lesser trochs uh, that they failed rehab, they failed injections, they failed hind foot correction, and they have a lot of times, to me, their osteoarthritis scores are going up. So even if the patient's hip score is holding and their spine score is going up, I feel confident enough at this point to say, if you've got a block eternal hip extension, I had a conversation with one of your colleagues just recently uh, just about this one fact. If you have, if your hips, if your spine score is, you know, going up and you can't get your hip into terminal hip extension, I think that if you don't have a, you don't have a femoral torsion problem, you don't have any dysplasia, borderline dysplasia then I think that probably in that case, you can talk to the patient about a lesser trochanteric plasty. And the caveat to that, it's a, it's, it, I mean, if you can do a subacromial decompression, this, isn't, this is just the same. It's, um, it's not complicated. You just, just like with a peritrochanteric space look, uh, you can look down uh, the backside and then adduct, you know, it internally rotate and the lesser troch just pops through the quadratus. And it really just, you can see it bulbs here and you can feel it through a posterior lateral portal. I usually make a small window in the uh, quadratus femoris. Uh, the nerve is nowhere near there. It's, it's, it's way away from the site. Uh, we'll, uh, we use just a little RF probe right there to open the window. Just Sometimes it's just a mini and it just opens up. I would say that the other caveat is once you start, just confirm with the, um, uh, the fluoro and uh, through a posterior lateral portal, you can through an AL looking posterolateral and down. And I kind of mark that all out with a pin before I start. So I know my angle in from the PL. And then once you're there, it's a pretty easy resection just to uh, take off the posterior uh, one third. Or sometimes, you know, if you have to take off more than you can, you can destabilize the psoas. And I try not to do that. I think Dean Matsu is working on repairing it. I don't have any experience with that. And I think if it's a truly anaverted lesser trope, maybe it's better from the front, but you just need to really be careful if you're going through the front because you have a medial femoral circumflex right there in the way. And certainly you don't want to be in, involved with that. And last caveat about this is sometimes it's not exactly in the middle of the quadratus, but I always stay in the middle of the quadratus because I don't want to be anywhere around 
any of the uh, big vessels or nerves. And I, I try to stay pretty much in that window and work my way up or down uh, based on that um, uh, so that I can stay right in the middle of the quadratus. And it leaves a little bit of tissue to protect uh, both proximally and distally uh, so that, uh, you know, you don't, don't get into the arteries, the first penetrating femoral and mediofemoral circumflex on either side. Uh, last thing on that is sometimes the IT band can be excessively thick because it's been it's not been able to move properly. And so we usually measure the thickness of the IT band. That's one thing that we have done. If it starts getting above 5.5, five, um, you know, and it's either anterior or posterior to the, to the, to the middle facet or the posterior facet, and you can see that it's rubbing, then I'm tempted to do a fractional lengthening of the IT band, just a little transverse cut of the thickest fibers. And I think that's also helped the patients to, um, to recover uh, quicker. And that leads me to the question of how the post-operative recovery after this procedure might differ from just a standard hip arthroscopy rehabilitation. Great question. So this I think is really a key uh, factor. So we teach the patient beforehand that they're gonna have to use their arms to lift their leg because we know the psoas is weakened, the psoas footprint is weakened. It usually grows back. Um, you can have a little bit of MRI change up to 20, 30%, just like with the lengthening of the psoas, but it hasn't turned out for us to have any effect on the, on the outcomes, on the patient reported outcome measure. So, but we teach them to lift the leg for about six to eight weeks with their arms, go always up with the good leg, down with the bad when they're climbing stairs. Um, and um, then we, we continue to do our circumductions. We'll let them ride a bike, no pull up, you know, on the on the stationary bicycle, no up pull, but down press is, is allowed. And then we just slowly bring them along uh, from that. But we, we're really protected about them using that. So as in, they've got to have a negative Thomas. They've got to have no pain with that at all, uh, with a, just a gentle lift uh, before we'll start letting them get off the crutches and whatever it takes on that. But we're a little more, a little bit more slow at that six to eight week mark uh, about getting them off the crutch. Uh, uh, before they uh, before they're independent, so that's that's just one thing that we, we found to be helpful. Okay, great. So in your cohort of patients, you found that the Oswestry Disability Index improved at a mean of 19 months after surgery, and about 67% of patients achieved their MCID on the Oswestry, with about 84% achieving MCID on the modified Harris HIP score. So, what do you think the main takeaway for the listeners would be from these findings? The thing I think that we're finally at the place where we can confidently say, really, that we need to always be aware that this the issue of femoral impingement or causes of limitation of terminal hip extension can exist, and they can it can be related to the spine. So, the thing what I would say is I don't know if there's too many other papers, but by treating the hip, we can have a positive effect on on the spine. And we, these, these cases that we looked at here, they've had some of them up to, you know, 12 spinal, you know, interventions of some type. And we're still getting a good re response. So if we fix the hip, it's just like Parvizi's paper. If you fix the hip, you know, the spine, the spine pain can improve. We're finding that to be true in extension-based pathologies of the hip. So what would I, what would I say about this? What, what, what is the takeaway? That we need to check always the hip extension on every single case and see if that contributes to the spine. And I think it's time that we also with our, I just I was telling Vicus, I think that it's time that in our hip registries that we start to include the ODI because I think that we're having, in, we're having an impact in areas that are significant and we need to just document it and see what kind of things 
that we're doing in the hip that might be influencing the joint abo above, which is the hip. So um, uh, definitely check uh, the uh, hip, internal hip extension. And then the second thing I would say is educate the patient about their biomechanics, because if you educate them, you can teach them to avoid a lot of surgery. And that's been a really big help for us. Uh, people, some people are just not good surgical candidates for whatever reason, and I, but we can understand the biomechanics and teach them to move effectively without upsetting the lumbar spine or the piriformis or the pelvis uh, related problems. So um, I think that that's, to me, of the paper, what, what, what would I hope and how would I hope that it impacts is to encourage people to do a hip extension test and, and to understand comprehensively the uh, osseous three-dimensional pathology of every single hip. And the goal is always to be under this, to have a five-layer diagnosis really for every single uh, pathology, or at least be aware of it, uh, of what's contributing. Because here's the thing, we have to teach our patients that this is a congenital and developmental hip disease that's treated, not cured, and that we're gonna take a step in treatment and treat this layer and this one and this other layer, these other layers that are being involved we have to continue to watch them and manage them. And if we can teach the patients that, I think it will go a long way to help them understand their pathology and help us to, to explain the potential next steps that could be required if, uh, you know, if the first one isn't, isn't acceptable. It's not enough. They may need a PAO. They may need a derotation. They may need a further uh, lesser trochplasty if we just do the anterior side. And or uh, that the that the interpelvis and the core, as we start to explain this further, that those can be related, and that we have to keep an eye on those things, and they're pre-existing. They're not caused by the surgery; they're caused by the pathology itself. And so that that's the that's the final thing. It's important to understand all five layers and explain them all to the patient uh, preoperatively, um, and have a plan for each of them. How those are some excellent takeaways. I think you've inspired me to think more outside the hip box for sure. So I truly appreciate your insight, your expertise, and your time talking to us about this pathology today. So thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure to have you today. It's been an honor and pleasure. Thank you so much, Andre. Dr. Martin's article titled, Low Back Pain Improves After Surgery for Lesser Trochanteric Ischial Impingement, can be found in the May 2021 issue of the Arthroscopy Journal or online at www.arthroscopyjournal.org. This concludes our episode of the Arthroscopy Journal podcast. As always, if you enjoy our podcast, please leave a five-star review. Thank you for joining us. The views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of the Arthroscopy Association or the Arthroscopy Journal. Music